Hi, good morning, everyone, and welcome. This is Seek Sustainable Japan. I'm JJ Walsh, your host in Hiroshima. And today, once again, we have the pleasure of welcoming back Asby Brown, who has been in the series many times, has his own playlist. We have had so many wonderful insights from Asby over the last two years. Thank you so much for joining once again, Asby. Pleasure to be back, and、uh, really appreciate that you've had me on、uh, to talk about so many, so many things. And、uh, of course, everything is ongoing, and you know we're in a hell of a time in in many ways right now. So、uh, there's a lot、uh, for us to think and talk about. Definitely.、Uh, in fact, you have. Through your work with SafeCast, which we've also talked about in the series,、uh, focused on sharing data about radiation and different parts of Japan as well as the world, you've been doing some research on the situation in the Ukraine and Chernobyl. Do you want to talk about that first? Yes, like、uh, like a lot of people, you know, I was alarmed, and you know,、uh, our our group SafeCast members were very alarmed by、uh, what was happening in Ukraine and and.、Uh, You know, hoping that their Russia would not invade, but expecting that they would,、uh, and even、uh, you know before that actually happened,、uh, we were discussing with our networks、um, the potential need to uh, do uh, kind of、uh, independent radiation monitoring in the Chernobyl exclusion zone.、Um, you know after. After anything happened, in other words, after access is, was restored, we were talking about that, and then <clears throat> later that same day,、uh, the news came through that Russian forces had occupied the Chernobyl、uh, nuclear power plant, and this was、uh, really alarming.、Uh, and at the same time,、uh, news came through that、uh, when they occupied, or shortly after they moved into the power plant, that there were the radiation sensors. Uh, Uh, in the in the exclusion zone and at, around the plant showed a spike of radiation, and、uh, so we immediately, you know, got into and investigate that and and find out what we could,、uh, you know,、uh, about what was happening and what the sensors were showing, etc. So、uh, to to jump back to you know to reassure people, there there it doesn't appear to be any major leak of radiation, any particular radiation related. Accident happening now.、Um, there was a spike, and we're trying to figure out what caused it. Uh, but um, and then the sensors went offline.、Uh, the data was unavailable for several days. It was like being spike, and then nothing. So it was impossible to confirm. But there was some of the sensors before they went offline. Had returned back to what they were before, so back to sort of normal levels, normal for Chernobyl, which is, of course, is elevated radiation, uh, and uh, and then they came back on a few days later. We and then went off again, so it's a bit unstable. But、um, the point is that、uh, you know, nuclear facilities, whether it's a nuclear power plant, whether it is a reprocessing plant, whether it is a radioactive waste storage, these are very vulnerable, extremely vulnerable. Uh, in in times of war, I mean, nuclear power plants are generally built to withstand an airplane crash,、uh, but they're not built to withstand missiles or artillery shells. So,、uh, and and what we're seeing with、uh, the Russian、uh, invasion is they are they are hitting everything. There, there, lots of civilian facilities. It's almost like they're not really aiming, you know, and and so much can go wrong. Uh, uh, it's it's abominable, and and to send a military force to occupy a nuclear power plant, this is this is unprecedented. IAEA, 
has spoken out strongly against it. Uh, you know, there's a, a, a proposal, which we don't know how it could be enforced to establish a 30 kilometer uh, no weapon zone around all of the nuclear facilities in Ukraine. Uh, but you, you, Russia has gone into Chernobyl. They've gone into another power plant further south in, in the nation, uh, which is a, a very, very large one. Uh, again, there's no indication of, of any damage to the power plant or, or release of radiation. Uh, but on the other hand, just a few days ago, I mean, like the day following the Chernobyl occupation, uh, the news came out that um, uh, a shell had hit a, a radioactive waste repository in Ukraine, south of Kiev. And um, again, our network got involved. We, we looked and people located it. And um, uh, fortunately, uh, it only hit the fence. It didn't damage any of the containers for the radioactive waste so and there was no apparent release of radiation but again it could have been uh, horrible so this is something that's very alarming and and i'm you know spending a lot of time uh networking with people with experts uh about these issues and trying to find out uh, what's happening so um yeah it's alarming it could so far we're we're okay uh on that situation but the potential for a horrific uh, accident, horrific disaster is is very, very uh, present. Uh, thanks for that update. It's really important to have information yeah. and it it seems really hard to get that kind of information. I've put the link for SafeCast. Uh, you mentioned yeah. that you There's might be SafeCast. doing an update. I will be writing updates. I have mainly been posting on the SafeCast Twitter feed. I have uh, a few uh, updates um, there, which people can look at, and it's ready for another update. Because here, here's the thing about the radiation spikes. You know, uh, people are going, "What was it? You know, did they maybe damage a building or something?" And well, it doesn't look like it. Uh, so quickly, an expert consensus emerged that it was because of moving lots of heavy vehicles, military vehicles, through the exclusion zone that probably raised dust. Uh, that was detected by the sensors, and then the dust settled, and uh, you know that that could explain it. But there was always other possibilities. Now, uh, some of us are looking at the possibility that it was radio interference from the military vehicles, or something else, a radar or something that uh, caused kind of a a glitch in the systems, uh, because not all of them uh, showed a spike. Many of them did, but some close by one would and one wouldn't. So it's very odd. So uh, maybe it was something else. So we're still trying to figure that out. Uh, and I'll be trying to write an update uh, about that too. Um, so yes, it's, the SIFCAST Twitter feed right now is has more information uh, about that. Okay. Uh, and um, lately, uh, I've been gathering information about humanitarian assistance. Uh, because I, I hope people understand that, um, you know, the Russian invasion plan uh, has apparently not gone the way they expected it to. It's taken a lot longer. They really seem to have expected the Ukrainians to surrender quickly, uh, but they're not. Uh, and this incredible her heroism we're seeing uh, from the Ukrainian people. Uh, but what the Russian military does, what they've done in, in uh, Chechenia, uh, in in Syria is simply blast cities to bits. Uh, they're an artillery army. Uh, many experts point out they bring in the big guns, the big bombs, uh, and just blast everything. 
and this is what they have planned for Kiev. Uh, people are evacuating. We know we've heard yesterday about a million people have already uh, are refugees uh, moved out of, of Ukraine, but a lot more people need to go out and they, they need a lot of assistance to organize that, to get the buses, to get these things, to get people out. At the same time, there's a huge need and will be an even bigger need for uh, hum humanitarian assistance to move in medicine, food, water. Uh, generators, everything, blankets, you name it. So uh, I have uh, sent a few links for groups that I think have been well vetted by the people who shared them with me. Um, they're kind of divided into two uh, two categories. One is uh, primarily humanitarian assistance. Another one uh, is primarily or includes military assistance because there's a lot of donations of money uh, to the Ukrainian military as well and to groups outside who are providing weapons for the Ukrainians. I could understand a lot of people don't want to send their money for that, for, for, for whatever reason, but uh, there are others that really are focusing on humanitarian assistance and there are some links for those. So um, I encourage everybody to uh, try to help out that way. Um, and it's an astounding time. Uh, it's extremely distressing, um, you know, and uh, I think a lot of people uh, have a hard time sleeping and uh, I'm in touch with, people in Ukraine. Uh, and, you know, it's like, don't even tell me where you are, you know, don't need to know where you are. But they're, they're, all the, the men basically are fighting. Uh, and uh, it's, um, yeah, a terrible situation. So thank you so much for that update. And I have added your links um, for humanitarian aid as well as getting more information about the situation in Chernobyl on the yeah. chat, which should be available to everyone. I'll make sure it's below Great. as well. Yeah. Now, Asgi, you and I are both uh, presenting at the Minka Summit coming up end of April. Yeah. Uh, you, you have been working on an interesting project you said you might be talking about. Yeah. You know, I, I'm really looking forward to the summit and I know you had Alex Karn the other day and he's also looking forward to it. And, uh, because it's the first time to do anything like that. And it's interesting that it's organized primarily by non-Japanese and uh, it'll have a lot of non-Japanese and a lot of Japanese there, I'm sure. Uh, and I've been thinking about what to present about. Um, you know, unlike uh, people like Alex, you know, he has, you know, really built and designed quite a lot of restorations of, of Minka. Uh, and my work, I've done less of that and more talking about the big picture uh, you know, how, um, you know, historically Jap Japanese uh, society was very, very sustainable, uh, explaining how uh, a farmstead, a kolminka and the surroundings uh, function together environmentally, uh, socially, etc. So um, that's, I think, what I will be talking about. And as part of that, as you mentioned, yeah, I, I've been involved with the project uh, since last year with a group called Chiwake no Mori. And it's interesting because their focus is forestry and they've done a number of, you know, other uh, projects and workshops. They have ongoing uh, projects about, you know, restoration and, you know, um, craftsmanship and a lot of things. But their focus is on uh, regenerative forestry. And they uh, were introduced to uh, uh, people who own a very old kominka in Chiba in Chona, in a place called Kuramochi, uh, which is about 300 years old. 
and it was lived in until fairly recently. Certainly uh, 50 years ago, I think even 20 years ago, they, they were still living in it. Uh, and it's on kind of a, a, a hillside uh, over a small valley. And it has a fairly intact Satoyama. Uh, so Satoyama, I think a lot of your viewers know, is the, the forest surrounding an agricultural village traditionally that was used for uh, providing firewood. People would collect the wood that fell down and, and use that for their firewood, for their fuel, and also for gathering food, uh, sansai, you know, um, you know, wild vegetables and herbs and mushrooms and things. So um, the focus of this is to try to uh, restore both the forest and the uh, Kominka building itself and the agricultural fields as an educational project. And, uh, you know, as we know, a lot of people want to restore Minka to live in them. And as you, as Alex was talking about the other day, um, lots of uh, municipalities, towns have uh, restored uh, old houses as part of their tourist uh, push. And, and there's a lot of reasons to do it. But this is sort of what can we do to restore it um, and build a community uh, that is sort of educationally oriented and that's thinking about what restoration means. What does it mean to restore? What are we restoring? Why are we restoring it? Who are we restoring it for? So I think it's a very interesting project. It's just getting off the ground. Um, you know, it's been launched. The photo you showed was of this sort of, you know, launch of the project. Uh, we had an event, uh, one day event at the site and we have other events coming up. Um, and uh, of course, there needs some fundraising. The local government is very interested, uh, you know, wants to be involved, uh, but it's not clear, you know, how much funding they will provide. Uh, but, you know, all over Japan, small towns are emptying out, they're aging, young people are not there. Uh, most of the Kominka projects that I've seen are in, you know, other parts of the country. Maybe it's Nagano, maybe it's Shimane, you know, maybe it's, you know, even Kyushu or someplace or, you know, uh, Shiga. But this is close to Tokyo. You know, you can get there in about an hour from Tokyo. So there is really a great potential uh, for it to, you know, connect with and, and, and have an impact and inform uh, people in the Tokyo area. So uh, we're looking forward to it. Who knows how it'll go? You know, there's a historical research that has to happen and then great team of uh, architects and builders who are already on board, uh, people with good experience doing historical uh, restoration and reconstruction, uh, and, and also good carpenters who have done a lot of uh, um, Kominka restoration. So I think it, it's gonna be great. Yeah, wonderful. And even just looking at those beautiful, big old beams that are exposed, which you're gonna you're seeing more and more in remodeled Akia and Minka around Japan, these projects and builders who are willing to work with old houses to show the beautiful old aesthetic yeah. is kind of new, right? Yeah. You know, this this is one of the things. Um often old uh you know farmhouses in japan uh that have been in use until recently they've been remodeled a lot on the interior and maybe they have a new ceiling and maybe the walls are covered up with paneling or something this one isn't this one is just like it was and uh you know above the irori uh you know the 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 the, the 
the rafters, the the roof beams, and there's some bamboo, you know, um, what would you call it? You know, sort of a bamboo ceiling up there. It's so darkened. It's just aged in this beautiful way. And just like it is, uh, it's a, a very unusual to find a Cominca now in that condition, I think. So, um, it, and it, it has, it needs some structural work. Part of it, you know, the floor is rotted, it, you know, this sort of thing happens. Uh, it needs some work, but uh, basically it, it really speaks to uh, people having lived a very similar lifestyle for for generations and for centuries in the same place. So I think it's really really great. Interesting. Um, and that I think leads. You can hear my dog barking. It's okay. The <laughs> it's, it's fine. Uh, it leads perfectly into talking about your book. Mm -hmm. um, now you have talked about just enough in the series before. Mm -hmm. uh, you you've been talking recently about how it seems like it has more relevance and people are more perceptive to the ideas of circular economy and sustainable living. Yeah. You had a great TED talk the other day, uh, really con making that connection between yeah. what is circular economy and how did Japanese people live in the Edo Jidai in a very circular way. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting because again, uh, you know, Just Enough was published around 2010. And uh, it's, you know, a while back and and there was a fair amount of interest at the time uh from people interested in sustainability i wrote it specifically for that and because of what i had been learning from people in different parts of the world who are working on sustainability issues uh and at the time for instance one person uh and one uh, you know project that i uh thought was very worthwhile uh was called cradle to cradle uh, and this is, you know, a play on the cradle to grave notion that you make a product and it has a life cycle and then you get rid of it. You discard it. So uh, and, and they were saying uh, this was William McDonough, who's a well-known uh, sustainable architect uh, and a partner had written this uh, this book and done this uh, this organization is to say, no, our everything we use should go from cradle back to cradle. It should not be recycled or downcycled because almost everything we recycle eventually becomes landfill or needs to be incinerated. You know, it may go through several incarnations, you know, plastic uh, pet bottles, you know, polythene bottles becoming some kind of rough plastic, you know, road barriers uh, becoming eventually uh, landfill. So uh, he's saying, no, no, we have to find a way to upcycle things, to bring them back to the top. So one of the interesting things is that the circular economy theory, and we have to give a lot of credit to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, who funded uh, some very important studies and research and publications uh, back, I say, 2013 was really when uh, their, their big studies came out aimed at business about circular economy. And they said very clearly, yes, we are synthesizing many streams of thought including cradle to cradle, including um, the blue economy, including uh, multi-nai, including, you know, uh, other things. Uh, you know, of course, now we have the, the sustainable development goals. So it's a synthesis, which is really remarkable. Lots of people uh, and, and projects that were sort of working in the same direction now have been pulled together under the term circular economy. And, and what I've been pointing out is that if you look at how Edo period Japan handled its resources and its environment, 
it it basically uh, checks off everything on the list for circular economy. Uh, it basically is a prototype for that. How does that work in reality, uh, in a social sense, in a material sense, in an economic sense? So I'm talking about that. Yes, I, we did. A, there was a TEDx. Um, Ogikubo uh, a couple of months ago that I, I where I mentioned that I talked about that uh, specifically. So um, yeah, it's everything we do should regenerate the environment. Everything should somehow improve the environment at this point. Uh, and uh, an example from cradle to cradle was um, McDonough and his uh, design firm had worked on factories that um, purified the water. You know, uh, basically the water was cleaner when it came out than when it went in. That's how things should work. We know it's possible. We have the technology. We have the know-how to do that. And of course, they do that using sort of organic biological processes. They're not pumping it through, you know, osmotic filters or anything. They're using sort of artificial wetlands, et cetera, which absorb uh, the pollutants and, uh, and, and clean the water. So things can work this way. Uh, this is really uh, uh, an important vision for the future for us. So there's a lot to learn. And definitely, you you mentioned the Satoyama before. Yeah. That that seems to be a key foundational aspect of the Satoyama. Uh, things Absolutely. come from the mountains and using natural gravity go through the agricultural fields. Yeah. And then the nutrients from growing the vegetables organically, of course, are very good. Um, going out to sea and as part of the whole ecosystem. Um, it doesn't really work like that when you add chemicals and you're right. damaging the water systems as they go through, right? Yeah. Well, you know, and and yes, basically at Edo period, Japan, and this was true in many parts of the world uh, at this time in the pre-industrial era and in some places continued even afterward to some degree. Yes, uh, the water system for agriculture was based on gravity, was using the natural watershed, the creeks, the natural ponds as much as possible, maybe modifying them a bit, maybe making a few new channels, but not destroying it and not, not modifying it so much that it stops functioning in a natural way. Uh, and this was, you know, brilliant. Uh, and ultimately, yes, as the water would go through the uh, the rice paddies. And again, this water, more recent experiments have shown the water comes out cleaner than it did when it went in. So uh, this is this is a great model uh, and, and a great and important principle to keep in mind. Um, again, speaking of regeneration, uh, the Japanese did it in every aspect. Certainly Satoyama was, you know, you'd, you'd call it a managed forest. I mean, people would go in, uh, it was natural, but of course they would modify it and, and help certain species of trees or other plants that, that were useful or beneficial. They would help those grow, maybe, you know, clear out some that were not so useful, but again, never damaging the natural functioning of of the forest. Uh, really looking at it as a resource, uh, and it was, again, managed, but it wasn't turned into agriculture or a plantation. Uh, there were lots of forest plantations in Japan in the Edo period. Uh, you know, lots of you know, monocultures of, of sugi, of, of, of cedar trees or hinoki, cypress trees, etc. Uh, and this is, you know, uh, was a trade-off 
for them at the time. Uh, a lot of mixed forests, you know, changed from, you know, from that to being monocultures of, of evergreens, which we still have. Uh, but it was regenerative. Uh, they developed principles that, um, and, and this was enforced by regulations, uh, that if you cut trees, you have to replant them. You can't just clear cut a, a, a hillside and leave it bare. You have to replant the forests after you cut them. And of course, if you cut one tree and you want another one to replace it, you have to plant about five because they won't all survive. And, and um, you know, you'll need to thin them out and, and keep the healthier specimens. So uh, this was a principle that it maybe took the better part of a century. Uh, you know, the, the, the first part of the, uh, you know, um, 1600s to, to really, uh, you know, become widespread, uh, but it was very, very effective. And we, we should learn from that as well. So, um, yeah, regeneration. They regenerated the agricultural fields. I mean, this is and remarkable. It's, it's, it's really important to remind people that, mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, a lot of these great practices of sustainable living and sustainable farming are not used in modern Japan anymore. Right. Um, but the inspiring thing about looking back at Edo Jidai and Edo society, like you do so beautifully in this book, um, is talking about how they were coming back from environmental destruction and lack of resources. Yeah. And we're in a very similar kind of crisis right now. So if they could do it back in the day without technology, there are some basic principles we can take to right. our modern world and hopefully use the same kind of mentality in a way that'll help us be more sustainable. Isn't that the basic concept? Absolutely. I mean, we look at like the challenges that we have now environmentally, um, you know, of course, climate change, uh, global warming is a big one, which the Edo period fortunately did not have. They were at a very good period in terms of global climate. Uh, but, um, you know, the difficulty uh, providing enough food, uh, the pr pressures of a large population, um, you know, problems with the forest, uh, you know, a lot of the, the, the issues were the same ones that we have. You know, we have desertification, uh, we have, you know, uh, basically deforestation all around the world. And, you know, we have a huge population pressures, uh, which are stressing the food supply. Uh, but the Japanese had the same pressures uh, on a localized scale. Uh, and they dealt with it using tools that didn't make any of those problems worse, really. And we're fortunate now that we have so many tools available, whether it's, you know, uh, t technology in terms of, you know, uh, machinery, uh, uh, digital information systems, sensor systems, um, transportation, you know, we can move things around, we can do all this stuff, but a lot of them don't avoid making the problem worse. Uh, and certainly our energy system is, is one of the big ones. All the, the fossil fuel based uh, systems that we still are using that have carbon. And we look at, you know, well, what are the non-fossil fuel based uh, sources? And of course, nuclear comes up as one. Low carbon uh, once it's in operation. But we have all these other potential problems from that that we see now sitting on pins and needles looking at what's happening in Ukraine. Um, but, you know, the Edo period was was very good in what we would call appropriate technology. And let's, uh, this, let's talk about 
about some of those practical things mm. that they had, which we need to bring back. So for example, uh, very simply, they had people who repaired things yeah. and found ways of using their resources in many different recycled circular ways, but using it as long as possible, right? Yeah. Yeah. And again, this is a key uh, principle of circular economy is, um, you know, to repair uh, one thing is to use things as long as possible. That's the key. Keep them in use as long as possible. So you are you have your device, your furniture, your 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 appliance or whatever, uh, your automobile. Keep that. Uh, repair it. Uh, you know, keep repairing it uh, as long as you can. And when you really want to replace it, don't junk it. Uh, put it back into the the economic cycle uh, to be resold, to be perhaps refurbished. Increasingly, manufacturers are prepared to do that, uh, to to refurbish appliances, et cetera, and then put them back on sale. Uh, keep these things in sale as used goods. Uh, you you flashed a picture of a used clothing seller from Edo. Uh, people were commonly wearing used clothing. They they were like five hundred used clothing sellers or something in Edo, and uh, including you know itinerant peddlers who would carry them down the street and some that were, you know, in shops and people were doing that all the time. Yeah, I'm tired of this kimono, you know, I'm going to go get a new one. And they trade it in, you know, uh, pay a little bit to get one that's been refurbished and cleaned up that they like. Uh, this is something that, of course, we can do. We're awash. We're swamped by by fast fashion, uh, you know, and uh, you can't even give it away. You can't even send, you know, clothes to lots of developing nations anymore because they have too much. So, um, yeah, keeping things in use is the key, is the key. And if the device, the item, the furniture, the can't be, or the building can't be reused uh, or resold or refurbished, then take it apart and and reuse uh, the components, whatever it's made of. And, and in the Edo period, most things were made of wood. I mean, it was a wood society. And, and wood is very easy to reuse for a lot of things, if nothing else, as fuel to burn it at the very end. Uh, and I have pointed out in my book and, and other talks that, you know, I was amazed to learn that there were uh, lumber yards, you know, lumber dealers in Edo and in other uh, cities in, in Japan at the time that sold only used timber the big beams and columns and things. And they were, Japan has this modular traditional architectural system where things were of similar dimensions. And, and, and basically you could get wood that was gonna probably be the right size to, to be reused somewhere else. So um, that, was, that was reused. And this links into uh, another principle that we're hearing more about now, uh, buildings as material banks. Uh, and there's actually an organization, BAMB, which is promoting this and they are uh, trying to, you know, get people to uh, buy into the idea that a building should be considered a temporary place uh, that materials are used. And at the end of use of that building, the materials should then be reusable. Uh, you know, not that it's going to be destroyed and then again become landfill or something like that, but uh, that uh, we should design buildings so that they can be more easily dismantled and reused, that the, the resources that go into it are being borrowed for a few decades, uh, however long, 
uh, hopefully buildings are going to stay in use longer for centuries. But if we can't do that, then let's make them dismantleable and reusable. And of course, Japanese buildings, Japanese architecture, whether it's a farmhouse or a castle or a temple or anything, they are they were done that way. They could be dismantled and everything could be reused. So uh, I think it's a wonderful principle. I think we'll hear more about that. BAMB, buildings as material banks. Uh, and I love that idea. Yeah, um, it's, it's a Alex Kerr, Alex Kerr was talking about that and, yep. and feeling gutted. And I, I have that same feeling. You feel gutted when you see perfectly good materials being all smashed together when houses come down, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think yeah. at least keep some parts that we it can hurts, reuse, right? you know? It hurts, right? I'm looking and, and I'm like that and maybe you are and he is going, you're looking at things that I, I could reuse that. I could use that board. Oh, what a nice board, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. You know, a lot of people I know are like or that. Or even, uh, you know, like when they use those crushers and the crusher, they take apart cloth, the house, the you can see all the materials and yeah. appliances or yeah. mirrors yeah. or cabinetry that yeah. definitely could be reused in some but, way. Right? You know, nowadays, um, Okay, of course, and the only reason it's done that way is because of the cost, because it would take too long or, or there would not be a good enough business uh, if crews were going in and taking things apart, dismantling them uh, with an eye towards reusing them. Uh, one of the reasons is um, the use of a lot of adhesives and things. Things are glued together uh, rather than fastened or jointed together. So, you know, it's hard to separate, you know, panels from beams and things. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, metal gets recycled pretty well. Uh, uh, a steel building is pretty recyclable. I mean, that stuff definitely goes to the metal scrapyard and gets reused. Uh, a lot of things like copper pipes and, you know, even wires, uh, you know, those things were likely to get recycled. They'll be messed up on the truck, but eventually, you know, often in many cases, they do go through, uh, uh, you know, a process of recycling the metals, but the wood rarely does. Uh, so, you know, it could be used in many cases for energy. You know, there are uh, municipalities that that uh, do that, that are burning scrap wood, uh, you know, for for municipal energy. Um, and in other parts of the world, it's even more common in some parts of Europe. But, um, yeah, it's a huge it seems to be a huge waste. Right. Uh, and I think uh, I wish I wish uh, this message would get through. On this note, um, I was asked to do a talk uh, earlier, actually it was the end of last year, it was in Nihonbashi, and it was the Mitsui Real Estate has sponsored a series of events uh, to highlight the history of Nihonbashi uh, and and what they're doing in terms of redevelopment. Now, I've, I'm not very fond of that redevelopment. Uh, maybe they're listening. Uh, it's too big. They've actually demolished the neighborhoods that existed. Uh, which had, of course, burned down in the you know 1920s, 1923 earthquake, and then were bombed during Second War. They were post-war neighborhoods, but they still had the texture and scale, uh, maintained a lot of the texture and scale. Is, the back is streets. This of your Edo. sketch of the original. This this is Nihonbashi, yeah. Nihonbashi, uh, the bridge right? and the river, and there's the the fish markets on either side, and you could see the castle. You could actually see Mount Fuji from there. And this was the huge. This was the major 
economic, uh, you know, uh, merchant district of of Edo, uh, and it still maintained that well until until the post-war period, basically. Sort of moved to Ginza, uh, you know, later in the Meiji period, but this still was uh, an important economic center. But it, now it's been redeveloped, huge, um, you know, office buildings and hotels and commercial buildings, etc. But I I was talking to uh, you know, the person from the real estate company, I said, you know, do you know about buildings as material banks? And I was like, no. And I said, well, you know, what do you think? It would be great if a company like yours would start to do it this way, uh, to look at the materials going into the building as simply being borrowed and that they're going to be uh, reused later. This would have a huge positive impact. And he kind of made this strained face and says, well, you know, we focus on uh, making our buildings, you know, have a long lifespan by being able to be, uh, uh, you know, having their functional use changed. So pretty much he's talking about interior renovations and, and, and things like that. And I said, yeah, okay, that's good. But really, you know, big real estate companies, big uh, general contractors embrace this principle it could be hugely beneficial. So yeah. I'm- And I'll you've planted that seed. You've planted the seed in there. So. It might grow. It might yeah. be there, you know, it but, might you know, ruminate. The guy didn't go, hey, that's a great idea. You know, he was like, <laughs> you know, like they have to change, it, yeah. they have to change the way they're doing everything. Definitely. And this definitely. is this, I don't want to say hypocrisy, but this is this, you know, disconnect between yeah. wanting to benefit and highlight Edo period principles and thinking and lifestyle while not really going very far to actually embrace it on a, on a real level. So yeah. we'll see a lot of that. It's, there's a kind of greenwash we see, um, you know, we see a lot I, of that with the SDGs. I, I see changes coming from I the consumer yeah. aspect. Yeah. Um, from consumer demand for these changes, more sustainable changes, more sustainable products and services, even more sustainable travel. And Alex Kerr, his project in Chiodi had a great positive effect, not only for international visitors and residents, but Japanese domestic market was also embracing this idea of bringing the old traditions into modern relevance, right? Yeah. So bringing this idea from your book of bringing back some of these concepts into modern relevance are relevant, very I, accessible. I, I hope so. I hope so. And, you know, um, there's two things that are interesting in this, in this uh, relationship. Um, one is, you know, a lot of people, they, they may have a fuzzy idea. Uh, they may be inclined, you know, they, or they may just not know of the possibilities. But when they see something like Chiori, when they see something that's actually been done, they can appreciate it. You know, they can say, oh, wow, yeah, this is possible. Oh, this is good. Um, it, it's a question of vi vision or, or lack of vision, lack of being able to really imagine what it would be like, imagine what goes into it, imagine how it works. Uh, it's a lack of imagination really. And, and, and mo most of us, you know, we really struggle with that. So, um, but if you actually see it, if someone does it, uh, whether it's a building, whether it's a new uh, garment, whether it's a new way to, you know, use water, um, you know, people go, oh yeah, that's a good idea. I think I'll embrace that. And then it becomes largely an economic and convenience question. Uh, you know, well, is this going to 
impact my lifestyle in a negative way? Is it going to cause me hassle? Is this something I want to do? So um, I, I think you've had someone on who the person who did the the, the compost bag thing. Yeah. yeah. So the idea, yeah, just have a bag in your kitchen. You just put the compost in and then someone will come. You can deal with it or someone will come cart it off and bring you a new bag kind of a thing. This is brilliant. And and that does not, uh, you know, cause inconvenience and, and it's easy to do. And that's a brilliant idea. And once people see it, they go, yeah, that's a great idea. It's like the first time I mentioned to people that I was doing a lot of research and really mm. excited about kamikatsu and yes. how they're going towards zero waste and yes. separating your garbage into 45 categories. And yes. most of the people I said that to, Japanese or international, would all go, what? No, <laughs> that sounds awful. Right. You know? But then now people are coming around to this idea. When I yeah. separate my garbage and it's burnt, it's creating more problems. Yeah. yeah. Um, there is no just get rid of it, right? Right. And a place like Kamikatsu is, again, it's a model. And, and of course, it's, it's municipal. The, the, the town is is supporting this there. This is the direction, the vision of the town and its identity. Uh, and the buildings, the architecture is wonderful. The new buildings they've built. Um, uh, and it's it's uh, something palpable and people are going there it's a, become a tourist attraction in its own right people go there just to see there and to see what's happening and how they're doing and it directly connected to you asby and this book when you check in at the y zero waste hotel they ask you please choose exactly how much soap you need please <laughs> Choose yeah. only how much tea you need how much right. coffee you need right and please use it up Yes. For your stay. Yeah. And that is directly connected yes. to just enough. I love it. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, I, you know, I'm one of those people who's fond of taking home the little shampoo bottles and, uh, you know, using them on my next trip or something. But, but yeah, uh, there, there are better ways to do that. Uh, and, uh, you know, I really appreciate that. So, you know, this comes to the other point, uh, is we do have a rise in what's called the values-based consumer. And this is all over the world. And Japan, you know, researchers I've spoken with, and definitely market research shows there is an increase. And it is largely, there's sort of a, a, a dividing line based on age. It tends to be younger people uh, because there are a lot of people in Japan who are very, very habit-oriented, habit who want to continue living, uh, you know, the same way. And, uh, you know, this is, again, it's very understandable. People value stability, familiarity, but we do have an increase in values-based consumers who will make choices based on environmental impact. Uh, and especially if the, the items that are available are also beautifully designed. And we're seeing more and more that this is one of the things that Japan really has to offer is a beautiful design of things that are also environmentally sound uh, and, let's say, sustainable. So uh, it could be architecture. It could be, again, household items. Um, a simple example is uh, a great resurgence in well-made wooden furniture. Uh, of course, you can go to Ikea, you can go to a cheap furniture store and get something, but there are good furniture companies all around the, the country uh, that are making very, very solid, durable wooden furniture that will last generations, something that can be prized, 
something that will become an heirloom. And uh, I, I see this highlighted more and more in interior design magazines and in, in, in other, you know, uh, showcases of, of lifestyle. So uh, it's going to be more expensive, but uh, it will last, you know, forever. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of people doing that. There, at the time, when I first came to Japan, really one of the only places doing that was Oak Village uh, in Hida Takayama. And uh, they sort of started this trend years ago. Uh, I remember they, they marketed the 100-year desk. It was like, don't buy a cheap, you know, study desk for your kid. Buy one that your grandchildren <laughs> will also be able to use. <laughs> right? I love that. Yeah. And yeah. when I visited Silicon Valley... Uh, the beautiful Apple shop and museum and rest area upstairs where you can view the trees of their facility. Um, that is made, it's kind of secret, but it's made by beautiful wood makers in mm -hmm. Japan. And I didn't know that. Yeah. So they mm -hmm. don't publicize that, but it is becoming mm -hmm. an export factor for Japanese yeah. brand as well. It's not just yes. something we really revere in Japan. Of course we do. Um, yeah. But it's it's a great thing to export. And we have more than enough wood to use. We need that money to help with forest maintenance, right? Yes, yes. Yes, I mean, that's an, and that's a big point. And yeah, Japanese forests are abandoned all over the country. I mean, basically, this is, again, the economics that it's uh, cheaper to import wood uh, in most cases. And if cost, purchase cost is the primary consideration, well, that's what people will do. But if we see, think of the other costs, the you know embodied energy the, the transportation the the carbon uh you know out, output uh involved in in importing uh, this timber also from places where maybe it's not being uh cut in a sustainable fashion either there may be exploitation and maybe other environmental damage that's simply not happening in japan this can change uh because again there's lots of forests that really need to be cut they need to be cut uh, for the health of the forests themselves to be thinned out uh, so that the forests can become uh, stronger and healthier. So this is, again, part of the project that I'm involved with in, in Chiba, with the Chiwake no Mori group, is to, to highlight this and, and to try to, um, you know, promote uh, renewable forestry or, or restorative forestry. Uh, so I think it's an important thing. Uh, and it can, it can happen. It should happen all over. And again, if people want to know how the Japanese do things, I mean, there's a, still this mystery, this wonderful mystery factor. Uh, and I see all sorts of YouTube videos of, you know, the mystery of Japanese carpentry and, you know, this, as if it's magic, it's it, the, the spiritual side of it. You know, people are very, very attracted by this. And uh, they want somehow to to absorb those values and, and to have that be part of their life as well. Uh, it, people hear, well, it's not that mysterious, you know, you, you cut it this way, you do it this way, you know, this is how we do it. But uh, from overseas, there's this wonderful mystery involved. <laughs> and uh, and that's, again, you know, a big, a big sales point. It's something that Japan can offer is a, a deeper sense of meaning to the things we uh, things we use. Well, that plays perfectly into the mentality of your the concept of sustainability in the Edo Jidai of mm -hmm. just enough. This yeah. beautiful Zen balance. Can you tell us about this? Okay. This uh, is an illustration of a water basin, uh, Tsukubai, at Ryoanji Temple in Kyoto, which is the famous temple with the most famous rock garden 
the white gravel and the stones uh, spread out a very famous Zen garden. And uh, the this water basin, uh, you can see a square in the middle. And that square is part of the four characters that surround it. it all of these characters have this square, which means mouth. And in Japanese, it's ware, tada, taru, shiru. And that is kind of a rebus. It's kind of a, you know, a puzzle even. Uh, and can be translated as, I only care about enough. I only need enough. Uh, all I need is enough, you know. And uh, this is a big, big principle. Uh, and it, of course, it's, it's key to Zen thinking, which is all about uh, avoiding anything inessential, uh, you know, in your life. Uh, not wanting possessions, to avoid wanting to have things, to avoid wanting uh, to be uh, ad admired by your, you know, society, uh, avoiding wanting to have something, you know, and uh, to empty out mentally and spiritually. And of course, this is, you know, very difficult to achieve in reality, which is why stories of uh, people, monks who achieve enlightenment, satori, you know, they're, they're infrequent and, and uh, important lessons. You know, how did he achieve satori? You know, and, and maybe you can as well. But for us, it's a path. It, it is not uh, necessarily a goal. It's a path. It is, if you live keeping this in mind, perhaps uh, your life will be, will be better and it will be better for all of creation as well. Uh, an interesting thing about Japan, though, I mean, Zen Buddhism, of course, it's, it's Buddhism came from India. Zen Buddhism really came from China. Uh, but Japan has the Shinto religion as well, which is, you know, animistic. Uh, all of nature is gods. Uh, there are demons as well. These are deities, uh, whether it's a mountain, a river, a rock, even the sky, the sun, the wind, uh, you know, many trees themselves are considered deities. And of course, people can also become deities. Uh, but, you know, the key is the place of humanity, the place of a human within that. Uh, and it's very different from what Western culture has become, where humans are considered the top of a hierarchy. Uh, and even in the Bible, um, one of the messages people have taken from it is that uh, God uh, gave humans, gave mankind the world to dominate uh, and to use, and that, that the world is a gift to man. Uh, and of course, you know, we can see how that value has led to a lot of problems uh, of overuse or poor use or exploitation uh, uh, damage. You know, it can be used as an excuse. Shinto thinking doesn't. It's no balance is important. You always have to maintain balance and the balance of human needs against the needs of the rest of the world. So this works together, I think, with this Zen thinking of Taru Oshiro, of just enough, I think, to, uh, to, to sort of limit, to keep the brakes on uh, human use of resources. Uh, and there are Counterexamples, there are certainly cases, like I mentioned, they did deforest the country before the Edo period, which is why it was so difficult. It, it was really, you know, facing the potential of big environmental collapse, which had to be stopped uh, and was successfully stopped, which is, you know, what I talk about in the book. But this notion of balance and humans really thinking about uh, how to uh, meet their needs uh, while not, uh, you know, damaging the environment. Uh, and really taking care of creation, 
This is the key, the key value. Yeah. And I think in terms of uh, the balance between people, place, uh, people, planet and profits as well, <laughs> right? You have to make a living, um, yeah. but you have to take care of your environment and you have to take care of people. Uh, otherwise, we don't have a future. Right. So it's that that finding a balance, finding a better way forward, uh, which doesn't inconvenience us too much. But we know there are better options. Right. I think that is that is the the path we need to take. Right. Well, and and as I point out in the book, um, the economic motive was very strong for almost everything Japanese did that you know, led to sustainable systems. They were making money by recycling. They were somehow uh, preserving their, you know, the, the, the basis of their businesses by taking good care of the environment where the resources were coming from. Uh, people were making money doing this. Uh, nothing happened by diktat. Rarely, in rare cases, did the government say, you must do it this way. It was, yeah, uh, we're looking at a picture of a public bath. Yeah, this was simply economical. Uh, to to have more people using the hot water in the bath than having each household have their own bath and use more fuel, et cetera. It, it was economically beneficial. They could have a business. They saved money doing that. The same for other recycling. People saved money. You could sell reused ash or you reuse cooking oil or or whatever, not just your clothes or your, you know, the, 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 the floorboards from your house. You could resell all this stuff. Um, and it's interesting that the... Um, Ellen MacArthur Foundation in their publications targeted primarily uh, towards business to say, these are opportunities. These are all of the, here's a, a list, here's, you know, uh, uh, you know, 60 pages uh, that will describe the new business opportunities that will open up uh, as circular ec economic thinking is uh, adopted. And uh, it's all about business. So there are. Uh, lots of potentials. It doesn't mean people have a worse lifestyle. We see from the Edo example that, in fact, uh, they were able to have a steadily increasing lifestyle, certainly in terms of health, certainly in terms of nutrition, uh, certainly in terms of quality of housing, certainly in terms of quality of, of clothing. Uh, and literacy was increasing at the same time. You know, the, this was actually lots of benefits all across the board. And so we know theoretically from that example that this can be done. Uh, I think, you know, we have to look at what, uh, what is stopping it? You know, what are, what is preventing this from happening? And of course it's sort of, you know, business as usual entrenched, um, you know, uh, practices and habits and, uh, you know, the, the difficulty or the resistance, uh, on industry or even government to, to change, uh, businesses to, to, to develop these new opportunities. And racing towards the cliff, I've heard um, that expression, right? Like yeah. use up, use up, and get all your profits now because we know it's going to not exist. So it's, let's take it's our money frightening, now. but again, if we look at look at this conflict in Ukraine, you know, ultimately, what is that about? Now we know Putin is uh, is. What, what can we say? He's a, he's a dictator. He's a madman. He, he wants to restore the, the Soviet Union and, and the Russian Empire. Uh, this really is his aim. Uh, but ultimately, people, uh, the businessmen, the oligarchs, the rest will buy into something like that because of the resources, because uh, the energy sources can be well, useful and profitable, because the agricultural 
resources can be profitable and 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 beneficial for them. There are fundamental pressures, uh, often you know caused by population, caused by what's happening in the rest of the world. Uh, there are, are pressures usually underneath every conflict, often that come back to uh, resource problems, uh, population, food. Um, you know, again, climate change is exacerbating all of these. So they are connected. They are connected. And, uh, you know, we hope that we have, you know, cooperative, collaborative solutions as we do. For, by and large, the business world, it is making deals. And, um, you know, not always fair, but basically it's making deals. We Can we have these resources? And we'll give you this instead. And you can use this money for something else. And, you know, this hopefully is, is, is a better system. But to do it by force is horrific, and and it's been happening for a long time in other parts of the world. Now we see it happening in in Central Europe. So um, this should be a wake up call. Definitely uh, circling back to that, uh, mm. being more sustainable because it feels good mm. as a part of your own personal brand of the person you want to be, how you want to live your life, how you want to work, how you want to travel. I think this idea of a fundamental change in priorities can really have a big effect on the businesses we support, the policymakers we put in office. And I really, I take that from your book as one of the key takeaways, I think, mm. is how we are defining ourselves and the people we want to be. And it feels good to make more sustainable choices. Uh, I like that. I think you're right. And for me personally, it becomes um, what kind of people do you connect with as you're trying to learn more? And uh, for me, that's been a, a great thing. This is building communities uh, of like-minded people. And, uh, you know, most of the people I know who really work on these issues, the sustainability issues, environmental issues, they're really interesting people and always have, and, and generally fun to be with. Uh, and, you know, renegades, a lot of them are renegades. And uh, I really like uh, that kind of community. So um, yeah, uh, for me, by and large, it's in internal, you know, what am I thinking about? What am I trying to promote? I don't really care so much about advertising it you know, on a day to day basis. Hey, I'm being sustainable, but I'm writing about this stuff, and you know, trying to promote it in this way. Uh, but it's about the people. One of the questions I get asked a lot, and I'm sure you do as well, Asby, is how do you stay focused? How do you not get overwhelmed by all the meta problems and all the big issues that it seems so impossible to fix? I do get overwhelmed. I mean, I can't, I won't, won't lie. I do, of course. Uh, but, you know, I'm fortunate uh, in terms of my temperament, I think. Um, I'm able to... Uh, compartmentalize. I'm able to focus on things, you know, uh, when I need to focus on things. Um, but of course I, I have to take care of myself and, uh, it may mean walking the dog, uh, may mean, you know, sitting down, uh, and just reading, reading something funny, uh, instead or reading a novel. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, self-care that we have to, that we have to, you know, do. And of course we know that through this pandemic, uh, and of course, I'm focusing a lot on what's happening in Ukraine, and and that's really stressful. That's really traumatic too. So you know, you have to take care of yourself. Uh, I um, you know, but again, I, I'm fortunate. I can sort of uh, focus and and uh, mentally block things out for a while. 
for a few hours or whatever, better part of a day to, to work on something like that. So, but you gotta be out there. I mean, lately I'm making sure I'm doing a, trying to do a couple of hours of manual labor every day, you know, and, uh, and like I said, you know, spend time with the dog and, uh, you know, uh, relax at night and go to sleep and try to sleep well. So. Yeah. It's really important. Self-care. Yeah. Um, I think you can also feel really good about the information you have put out there in the world um, that we have talked about in, in today's show, but also about Japanese carpentry and the inspiration you're giving people to look back on more sustainable uh, traditions and habits from Japan. It's really gratifying, you know, to hear that. And I'm always gratified to, to hear from people people who've read the books or who've heard a talk and who want to know more. And um, yeah, it's, it's very gratifying. I'm not doing it for that reason uh, necessarily, but uh, it's a wonderful, you know, result. And uh, you know, at this point I've been doing this for a long time, right? It's, you know, 30 years of my life spent uh, working on these issues and writing about these issues and, 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 and trying to promote them and popularize them. So um, it's great that I'm kind of an old timer, you know, uh, at this point. And, uh, and it's wonderful to see, uh, the generations that have come after who are building on that, who are taking it to the next level. That's, that's another incredibly gratifying thing to see. So, um, it's all about that. It's all about passing it on and, uh, hopefully inspiring people, uh, and help, helping people learn and, uh, to, so they can do it, do it, will do what they want to do, uh, in their own way, uh, maybe going in the same general direction. Fantastic. I just want to shout out to some of the great comments we've had along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, Tova says, I love the BAM concept that you mm -hmm. talked about. Mm -hmm. uh, B-A-M-B, using, right. using uh, the resources from buildings. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, we had another uh, from Rich Young on uh, mm -hmm. LinkedIn. This mm -hmm. is a great idea. We looked at Kominka and Hyogo that was built 500 years ago and was remodeled 150 years ago. Mm -hmm. Then when we saw it, the second remodeling was underway. How mm -hmm. exciting. Yeah. You don't see many houses that old anymore, uh, right? Not, not that many. Yeah. So a lot, a lot of the Kominka we're seeing are major period even uh, or later. Uh, you know, we do see a, a fair number of uh, Edo period uh, buildings becoming available, you know, to be remodeled, et cetera. They're there. I mean, they're there. But we see, you know, a lot of them, even a major period building, uh, it's very, very traditional. And especially in rural areas, they, they maintain most of the same uh, kinds of layout and, and construction. Uh, and uh, really, really beautiful. I've seen quite a few in Fukushima, for instance, some wonderful old samurai houses. Uh, and often um, in, in many parts of the country, samurai were also doing farming and, and lived in basically Kominka. Uh, so I'm looking at those and some of that date uh, from the Meiji period even, you know, that were the same family, but then they built a new house later and it's the same kind of house. So it's great. <clears throat> uh, also, Kyle on YouTube says, it's nice watching your discussions on environmental aspects on YouTube. Keep moving forward. Thank you, <laughs> Thanks, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, those insights about Minka and restorations, of course, mm -hmm. we will mm -hmm. dive into at mm -hmm. the Minka Summit over uh -huh. those three days. And you're going to be there, up. right? I'm going to be there. You're going to be there. Uh, and I'll, um, there's some people that, that I have never met in person uh, who also be there. I think it's going to be great. And some people that I know, of course, uh, I really look forward to it. 
And even if uh, some of the events are full now, mm. I think they're going to have outdoor workshops. We're mm -hmm. going to be able to walk through some kominka <clears throat> with mm -hmm. experts like you and mm -hmm. Alex Kerr, I think. And you <laughs> right. can point out some of the right. key features. Very exciting. Yeah, it'll be great. Awesome. Well, thank you once again, Asby. It's wonderful talking to you. And I'm looking forward to getting my uh, paperback version of Just Enough. So <laughs> yep. uh, just to shout out, you can mm -hmm. order it now, right. but it won't be published until the beginning of April, right? Uh, yes, I think that the publication date uh, from Stonebridge Press is April 10th. Let's see, you know, how long it takes to get books to Japan, etc. Uh, but yes, we're looking at April and uh, there's always, uh, especially the last couple of years, supply chain issues, etc. So I'm wondering, I'm just hoping there's no uh, real delays uh, after that. But yes, so you can go ahead and order it. Uh, it is largely the same book, the primary content, uh, new forward, sort of looking at the situation now, 10 years after the original came out. Uh, and then I've updated a lot of the sections, uh, what we call lessons. So after each uh, section, uh, including, you know, some information about current situation and, and you know, sustainability uh, uh, practices and uh, you know, needs, etc. So I've updated uh, some of those, but basically it's the same book, same illustrations. Yeah, I love. I also the, updated the resources, uh, the reading. Resource, yeah, there's a, a, a lot. Added a lot more resources in it. Yeah. Resource chart for building materials, yeah. for example. Um, um, all of your that. sketches are in there, which are yeah. so wonderful from the original <laughs> book. Um, but you also have more updates about uh, how these concepts are being adopted yes. by the United yeah. Nations. For instance, Satoyama Initiative. Right. That's one section that I updated. Um, yes, there'll be other you know other other uh new information i mean a lot of it was statistics what percentage of fresh water is used for what well i went and checked all of that you know 10 years later what's the situation and you know uh, basically made sure that that stuff is up to date so that's great it'll it's mm -hmm. a great resource uh for anybody living in japan or beyond i think thank you <laughs> Thank you so much, Asby. Thank you, everybody, for joining. Everyone have a wonderful weekend and see you next week. Yes, thank you.